Welcome to the Trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on, claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention, and violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today, and you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. Here is your host and narrator, Krista Smith. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Lawrence O'Donnell today, MSNBC host and author of Playing With Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. We're going to be discussing this period in history, why this story feels so timely, and we're going to talk about his own experience working with Aaron Sorkin on The West Wing. So I want to start, Lawrence, by asking if you can set the scene for us in August of 1968 in terms of the mood of the country and the stakes at the Democratic National Convention. The 1968 was a year like no other in American history. The country was coming apart in a way we'd never seen before. We had the first mass anti-war movement in American history that was changing minds slowly but surely every day and turning opinion against the war slowly but surely every day. Uh, While everyone in America had someone in their life who was relatively immediately threatened with being killed in Vietnam, if it wasn't you as a 19-year-old boy, It was your girlfriend. It was your sister. uh, It was uh, someone. Everyone had a relationship to someone uh, who could be drafted, uh, could be sent to Vietnam, and could, as history would ultimately show, become one of the 54,000 people who never came back. And so there were military funerals every day in this country. Uh, The Death count in 1968 alone was greater than uh, all of the American war dead of the 21st century in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you also had signs of hope emerge that something could change uh, when Gene McCarthy ran for president as a anti-war candidate challenging the Democratic president for the Democratic nomination. And then Gene McCarthy was joined in the campaign by Bobby Kennedy, who was also running as an anti-war candidate and seemed like a stronger possibility to actually win the nomination and win the presidency. You had Martin Luther King 
turning against the Vietnam War um, and risking his relationship, such as it was, with the President of the United States on civil rights in order to say what he felt he had to say about Vietnam. Martin Luther King gets assassinated in April. This is before everyone has a phone in their pockets that's telling them the news every second. Bobby Kennedy had to stand up uh, on the back of a flatbed truck in, in Indianapolis and announced to a mostly black crowd that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And six weeks later, when Bobby Kennedy wins the California primary and looks like he's on the way to possibly winning the Democratic nomination and then the presidency, he gets assassinated that night. And so in 1968, we had individual events, each of which would have been the largest event of any previous presidential campaign year, uh, and included in those unprecedented, gigantic events of that year was the Democratic Convention and the rioting that broke out in Chicago, and also, to a certain extent, in, inside the convention hall. And, and what did these events look like to the average Americans watching at home on TV? Um, one of the parallel behaviors, the, the thuggery that you see with the Chicago police on the streets of Chicago was duplicated to some extent inside the convention hall. And America's watching all of this on live TV for the first time in its history. We're now accustomed to watching, you know, the bombastic and historic and dangerous events uh, unfold on live TV. But this was the very first time that we saw this kind of uh, mass street protest turn to rioting on live television. And there were the live television crews for the networks were all there to cover the convention. But what was happening on each convention night was that just as the convention was peaking and when the Democrats wanted the attention on the convention, the news, the network news cameras were turning outside and they were filming what Karen films in this movie. They were filming Tom Hayden. They were filming uh, these protests in the street. They were filming what was happening in this film. And so one of the things that's great about the film is that it captures the thing that was the most important thing that was happening in Chicago. And it's the first time in history that at a presidential convention, a presidential nominating convention, the nomination was not the most important thing. The protests were the most important thing. And the network cameras made the same decision that Aaron made in his focus uh, in this film. And so it was a time of upheaval like we had never seen before. And every day, in small ways, America was changing its mind about all sorts of things. That was changing its mind about what men could look like. Uh, you know, the long hair you see in this movie did not exist on any of these people uh, as recently as five or six years earlier. It just simply didn't exist. The way they dressed did not exist uh, in 1963, five years earlier, when President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, and so 1968 was the explosive culmination of the most explosive decade in American history since the Civil War. 
And so many people have been drawing parallels between 1968 and obviously the trial and what's happening today. What do you see as the sharpest parallels? And then what do you see as the distinct differences? The the sharpest parallels are the visuals. I, I've never seen um, protests and I've never seen protest reaction like 1968 until this year, until 2020, uh, beginning in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. But it's of a piece, I think, with the kind of protest that erupted uh, the day after Donald Trump's inauguration. We saw the single largest protest in the history of protests on the planet, which was the Women's March in Washington, D.C., that was duplicated all over the country and all over the world. Uh, and so that that created uh, a mobilization that, you know, that that Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman could only dream about. That They got huge numbers at the time, you know, to get 100,000 people to show up in Washington, D.C., as they did in 1967. Uh, was absolutely astonishing. We'd never seen that before in in the history of public assembly in America. Um, but you know, the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated, they had about a million in Washington D.C. alone. Um, and so the the enormity of that mobilization had uh, an energy base to it that I think alighted with in 2020, which happens to be Donald Trump's re-election year, the the George Floyd protest. And so we ended up seeing more people on the street. We also ended up seeing, you know, more fire, more more things burning, more things destroyed. That's that's straight out of 1968. I mean that that that's that imagery uh, at that scale um, across the country. Uh, we just haven't seen since 1968. What do you see as the unifying factor in the protests of 2020 with the protest movements of 1968? The similarity, the the unifying principle of the protest between 1968 and 2020 is life and death. What they were protesting in Chicago was a matter of life and death, their own lives and their own deaths. If they followed what their draft cards required them to do and show up for military service and go to Vietnam and get killed. And we see scenes of uh, kids burning their draft cards in, uh, in this film. And that was a federal crime. You go to prison for that. It, it was not a small thing. But they were taking that stand in the same way that the Black Lives Matter protest and the protest in the aftermath of George Floyd have been about life and death. And they have been about the the danger to the lives, the lethal, deadly danger to the lives of black people in this country. And as in the 1968 protests, people who were not at risk of losing their lives in Vietnam were still out in those streets protesting. Women who could not be drafted and could not be sent there were still out there protesting. David Dellinger in in the movie we see is much too old to have been drafted. He was still out there protesting. And that's what we see this year. We saw 
all over the country. Uh, we saw, you know, masses of people whose, whose lives do not really put them at risk for a deadly intervention by police, but they were out there and they were trying to defend the lives of other people. So that's actually the unity of these two protests. 1968 was a protest about life and death, nothing less than life and death. And Black Lives Matter has exactly the same stakes. Mm-hmm. And Mayor Daley, in, in terms of Chicago, I mean, he gave basically the police license to respond aggressively. Mayor Daley, mayor Daley was doing what every mayor in America did then. Police were used as a bludgeon. They were not used as diplomats. They were not used as social scientists. They were used as a weapon. And police officers gleefully accepted uh, that duty and and gave that duty to themselves. And so the Chicago police behaved the way police departments would have behaved pretty much all over the country at the time and did routinely behave when people weren't looking. Um, The unique place that the Chicago police have in this history of this kind of law enforcement is they became the very first police force on on a large scale you know, other than Birmingham, Alabama, during, you know, during the civil rights protests, which involved actually relatively few police officers uh, and relatively few victims in the, uh, when you look at the video of that, the Chicago police became the very first police officers caught on tape, the very first police officers behaving that way on a giant scale the entire department of a major American city attacking thousands of people and caught on tape. They were the first ones. And they, they had no idea what the power of the cameras were. They were beating up network cameramen. They were beating up, you know, New York Times photographers. They were beating up every member of the press who had a camera. Uh, and that's part of how the verdict against them was delivered so clearly. There was a national commission that investigated the riots, that declared those riots to be a police riot in Chicago. And that finding came out three months before this trial started in 1969. Yeah, and it's it's incredible that we saw it happen again on 2020 with in Lafayette Square again and in Portland and all over this country with cell phones capturing every bit of it. Yeah, and I've always said, I've always said, you know, you haven't seen, you haven't seen anything. 1968 was much worse. 1968 was much worse. That's slipping away as a declaration. I'm, I'm not sure that, that by the end of 2020, I'd be able to say that. The trial begins because the AG, John Mitchell, is looking to serve as a political agenda and criminalize these protesters. Here's a clip of him doing exactly that for our listeners. Then there's a bigger question. Which is? Who started the riots? Was it the protesters or was it the police? The police don't start riots. They'll have witnesses who say they started this one. And you'll dismantle them and you'll win. Can you talk about the similarities with what's going on today with Attorney General William Barr? Well, you know, one of the um, footnotes uh, to this, this the, to the story told in this movie is there's only one person in the movie who goes to prison. There's only one, and that's the attorney general. That's John Mitchell. John Mitchell went to prison for 18 months 
for his criminal conduct uh, on behalf of Richard Nixon uh, in the Nixon campaign during the Nixon administration. He was one of over 40 people working uh, for President Nixon, who, in the end of their stories, end up convicted of federal felonies in the Watergate investigation and being sentenced to prison. And so he was the very first attorney general in the history of the United States to be found guilty of a crime. He was a Republican attorney general. Uh, the second attorney general in the history of the United States to be found guilty of, the, of a crime was the attorney general who then replaced John Mitchell. And so we have not seen conduct like that in the attorney general's office ever since, because everyone knows going into the Justice Department, there's the John Mitchell model, which you must avoid, like the plague that it is. Uh, and then there's the kind of honorable attorney general model, which everybody has been striving for until until William Barr, who is making John Mitchell look timid. Uh, William Barr does things that John Mitchell would never dare do. Um, you know, the, the great thing about the way Aaron presents John Mitchell's role here at the beginning of the film is the door is closed in his office as attorney general when he's telling these prosecutors, this is the case I want you to bring, and this is why I want you to bring it, and this is who I want you to indict. William Barr does that stuff publicly. He'll, he'll go on Sean Hannity's show and say that stuff, uh, the, the equivalent thing. And, and he conducts, he very boldly and proudly does these things that are very, very much in the shadow of John Mitchell. And that's the one thing that none of us ever expected to see again was an attorney general like John Mitchell. We just never expected to see it. My other question is about Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden, because Aaron, the way he presents them and the way they were, it was two very different approaches to activism, as our listeners can hear in this next clip. I don't know what good it does to insult the judge. And it was in view of the jury and the press. And Fernanda Schultz will be recommending sentencing for convicted. It's a revolution, Tom. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Which one do you think, and this is interesting, as you were a teenager at the time, which was more impactful? Um, they are two sides of the same coin. I, and I, and I think they always both understood, uh, that they were two sides of the same coin and they had two different approaches to this. You know, Tom Hayden didn't have to associate with Abby Hoffman if he didn't want to, he chose to. And Abby Hoffman didn't have to associate with Tom Hayden if he didn't want to, he chose to. Tom Hayden knew that Abby Hoffman could dramatically increase turnout at this protest. And Abby Hoffman knew that Tom Hayden would do the organizational work and team up with other people who would do the organizational work so that they would choose things like locations, where to do it, how to get the buses, how to get buses coming from all over the country to deliver thousands of people to Chicago. Uh, where people would sleep, how do you get permits, all that sort of thing. Uh, Abby Hoffman didn't know about any of that, didn't care about any of that, didn't have to care about any of that. Uh, and so, you know, it's like a giant, it's like a giant touring rock band. And there are, you know, uh, record producers on the bus and there's, there are 
wild musicians on the bus and there are agents on the bus and there are, you know, people who know how to make the sound system work. That's what they were in and they all knew it. And so, you know, there were, there were, there were tensions, but when you pull back and you watch them over a period of years, as opposed to just within this relatively tight frame of the film, and you look at the, the, the full run of the way they dealt with each other and the way they dealt with the movement, I, I don't think ultimately either one of them would have any real serious problem with the other. But whenever you, you, whenever you say we're, we're going to look at these people under the most extreme pressure they've ever been under in their lives and we're going to tighten this world to where they basically are in the same room together uh, and they're all facing potential long stretches in federal prison, then the tensions that, that Aaron uh, delivers in that are, are real, uh, they're understandable, um, but I don't think those two guys ever lose sight of the value of each other to the larger movement. Mm-hmm. Very good point. I didn't think about it as a rock touring bus, but that's exactly what it must have been. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that Tom, Tom Hayden was SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. Abby Hoffman was 30 years old. Abby Hoffman was not a student. Abby Hoffman represented another kind of person out there who was fed up with this whole thing and was rejecting way more than just the war. They were, he was rejecting the entire culture that led to that kind of war. Uh, Tom Hayden was too, but Tom Hayden was organizing through the college system. And, you know, Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, had chapters in every university or most universities in the country. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the treatment of Bobby Seale, who was the chairman of the Black Panthers, by the judge in that courtroom? It's one of the most shocking moments of the trial. Bringing Bobby Seale back into the courtroom, bound and gagged and then chained, was was something we were not allowed to see because cameras were not allowed in federal courtrooms as they still aren't for the most part. And so what we got of that in imagery was the courtroom drawing. We used to have these artists who would sit in courtrooms all day and do drawings of the lawyers and the defendants in in the dramatic trials. And so what appeared in uh, our news the next day was in its way something more powerful in a way and more awful than a a photograph because the drawing carried a 300-year implication to it. When you looked at those black and white, you know, pencil drawings, basically, that would be reproduced in a newspaper or on television, that could have been a drawing done 300 years ago. It could have been a drawing done 200 years ago or 100 years ago in an American courtroom or uh, in an American, you know, police station, uh, or it could have been done at a slave auction. Uh, And so it had an eeriness to it that is kind of indescribable in, in today's world. And I realized when I saw the scene 
I, my head was, I was thrown a little saying, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? And what was wrong with this was that I had never seen that. We had never seen it. Cameras were not allowed. And so Aaron has something there that we never saw. And we thought we saw, we thought, we thought we were there. We thought we were in the room. We thought we'd seen everything in, in the way that you can feel that from media coverage of a trial. And the, that the, the imagery of it in real time in 1969 was um, confirming of our view of the way America treated somebody like Bobby Seale. So it was not surprising and it was horrifying, both of those things at the same time. I'm just a little speechless there thinking about those images because that's something I hadn't thought of as the power of those, that drawing. When it was all over, right, was the public opinion that that the Chicago 7 were heroes at the end or had it just dissipated into other news? No, I, I think the Chicago 7 were heroes to the peace movement, but not all of them equally. You, you know, I think I think Bobby Seale definitely became kind of more more heroic and prominent in people's minds after that. But Abby Hoffman, for example, and Jerry Rubin were never, ever taken as seriously as part of a peace movement as Tom Hayden was. But Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were by far, by far the most famous of, of those people, by far. I mean, David Dellinger never became, you know, a kind of celebrity figure. Uh, you know, for the rest of his life, he could walk down the street anywhere and no one would know who he was. And, you know, Tom Hayden became, Tom Hayden went into Chicago already kind of the only one of, of the sort of what I'd call more establishment peace movement who had any kind of fame at all. He'd already been to Vietnam, uh, which no one had done. He'd, he'd been there. He'd, he'd come back with reports about Vietnam. And then Tom Hayden's later life, he ended up, you know, he really did take on a certain celebrity coming out of uh, the trial. And then he ended up uh, marrying Jane Fonda, which, which made him more visible to more people in other ways. But they were never looked at really as heroes. I don't think they were ever given the kind of hero framing that they deserved because there were, it, it was so chaotic and the, the trial was chaotic and the trial was silly and disturbing and important and silly. It was always, every day it was silly. You know, it couldn't stop being silly for basically for three reasons. And that's, uh, that's Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Judge Hoffman, who was the most ridiculous judge in America. And to that point, here's a clip where we hear Judge Hoffman struggle to keep track. Excuse me. Have we identified the other defendants for the record? Uh, Mr. Um, Weiner. Weiner. Mr. Freunds and Mr. Dillinger. Dillinger, Your Honor. What's going on here? 
Uh, Your Honor, you're referring to the defendant Dellinger. Dellinger. Um, it's Dellinger, sir. Note the prosecution was referring to the defendant Derringer, not Dellinger. It is Dellinger, Your Honor. Can we straighten this out? And I mean, the, the, the movie, I, I, I don't think, I, I think Aaron made a correct judgment in, you know, limiting Frank Langella to the extent that he does because the judge was crazier than that. Like, <laughs> you're getting the tip of the iceberg of crazy of this judge. And I think in the film, if you went with the actual full playing of it, no one would believe it. Um, you know, I, I think it's extremely likely uh, that Judge Hoffman was in uh, uh, some kind of declining neurological state because it was, it was madness. And so the, the trial had this weird, unserious element to it with Abby Hoffman, like out there kind of doing stand-up at night during the trial. It seems to reduce a certain sense of stakes, and 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 and, and, and yet, you know, when you understand the the federal law and what they were facing, it, it was a deadly serious business. But it was also kind of tonally muddled uh, for uh, for Americans, including people in the peace movement. They they didn't quite know what to make of it in the end, you know, and then they win on appeal and it disappears. And, and the other thing to remember is every day that the trial is going on, the peace movement and the protest movement is still going on. All you've done is you've taken eight people off the field. That's all you did, eight out of millions. And so it's all still happening. And there are huge events and huge protests that are still happening out there, uh, trying to fight the fight that uh, that these eight are fighting in that courtroom. Well, um, I have to get you to talk about Aaron because you are uniquely qualified, <laughs> having uh, worked with him for many years on the West Wing. Can you just tell me, what is his secret power? Like, he, it's obviously storytelling, but he does it in a way that illuminates these giant, important issues for an audience, but distills it into entertainment. Aaron is a dramatist. And so he looks at the world the way a dramatist does. And he sees things that others don't see. And so he saw in this trial, whenever he decided to focus on it, and I know he was talking about it, so long ago, I, I mean, it feels like, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, and, and, and he found the drama in it, which is not, it's not easy. It's, it's very tricky. Um, he found his frame. He found his ways in. He found what he needed to find in this. And it just happens to be in a political arena. Um, and people might think, oh, you know, that's what he does just because he's associated. He created a television show uh, that has 154 episodes <laughs> set in the White House. And so, you know, that he's got that, I think, label in some people's minds. But 
the truth of it is, um, he he will find drama anywhere. Uh, social networks an example of that. He, he, he can't predict where a dramatist like Aaron is going to find the drama and then be able to shape it and make you care about what he cares about. And so my, my favorite thing about this is that we had written about five episodes of The West Wing. Aaron had written them all from page one to the end, and we were kind of writing versions of scenes that he would then adapt into the, the full script and get it done. And we're walking across the Warner Brothers lot, and I said to one of the other writers, by now, meaning by the time the audience has seen all of these, these five that, that we've now written, by now, the audience is going to understand that nothing happens here. They're going to understand that, okay, the sets are really impressive and it's, it's really, it's been fun, but I get what you're up to. And they're going to understand um, there's no baby dying in the emergency room and, you know, no one's facing the death penalty and the cops aren't chasing anybody and shooting anybody. Nothing that happens in every other hour-long drama in the history of television is happening here. And at this point, the audience will say, thank you very much. I get it. We're going to check out. There's, there's no way we can keep this ball in the air. And meanwhile, we all love these episodes and we love these scripts. And we, I am thinking we are writing for ourselves uh, and we're going to love it. And I'm not sure who else is going to stay with us on this state. They'll stay with us for four episodes, but by the time we get to five, it's probably all over. And of course, they show up in a big way for the first episode. And in television, the most important thing is what happens to your second episode, because most series go down after their series premiere. And on the second episode, the audience went up. And by the fifth episode, it was still going up. And so I learned that drama is what Aaron Sorkin says it is. And that's what the audience accepted, was... He's telling me this author, I'm in this author's grip and in his authorial grip, I accept as important what he tells me is important. And that, that is the work of a dramatist. And to, to explain it is something that is, I think, beyond the scope of our microscopes. We're lucky that we get to witness it. It's a thrill to talk to you, and um, I really appreciate you participating in there's, this. Um, there's nothing I would rather be doing now than sitting on the set at the West Wing with Aaron uh, watching that cast do their thing. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, you'll be hearing from the film's actors, including Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, Eddie Redmayne, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and John Carroll Lynch. Somebody who believes in justice so much that they're prepared to sacrifice their life is, you know, is a captivating character to play. I just hope I did him justice. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.